So I, I was sitting in a cell, and basically, it's kind of a funny story, you know, they, they bring you in, and they're like, you know, we found the weed, and I'm just like, in my head, I'm like, that's awesome, because, you know, like, the rest is not, you didn't find that, and it was just that's so relieving to me. It was hidden well, but in my opinion, they should have found it, and I didn't know who this God was, but, I mean, he must exist. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Well, we are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. And as a warning for the content of today's show, some listener discretion would be advised. And in the lead up to Easter, we begin a mini-series titled The Power of the Cross as we consider what it means to Canada for Jesus to die and resurrect. And with me is a close friend, James Manzo. Thanks for doing this. Hey, David. Thanks for uh, letting me come on here. James, you have a, a story that is not your story. It's God's story. And uh, I just want to thank you off the start for being willing to share it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you couldn't put it better. It's God's story, you know? Yeah. And we, uh, we'll, start with, uh, we'll start on a lighter note because I think this is going to get heavy pretty quickly. Uh, you're a football fan through and through. What's better, the Canadian version or the American version? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I guess it's from who who's watching it. <laughs> you, you watching it. If okay, you're, well, if I'm watching it, definitely the American game. I know it better. I know the rules better and uh, the players better. And is a big deal to me, I guess. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, football was a bit of a... It was a bit of an escape for you. As, as a child, as a teenager, you, you spent a lot of time studying the game, watching the game, playing the game, because you had a tough upbringing. Yeah, um, that was a, that's a huge point. I don't think about that that much. It was definitely an escape for me. So your father is a pastor at Goodwood Baptist Church for a number of years, but there came a point where he was let go from the church. I think maybe grade six or something like that. It was quite successful. It was doing well. And then they had let him go, I guess. Um, there had been some people that come in and kind of had led the leadership team um, away from supporting my dad. Um, so he had come to a vote of non-confidence. Um, and he did not have that vote of non-confidence in his favor. So uh, he resigned uh, from that position. And then what happened after that? Well, you know what? I mean, I guess in the quick things of, of you know, a couple of years later, um, he, uh, my mother and him had a separation for a moment, and he actually committed suicide right before I went into grade eight. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, and, you know, looking back now, obviously it was not just something that just happened. Like, from that, that breaking of the church um, and mentally whatever he was going through, which we don't always really know because he wasn't too open about it, he didn't get too much help. Um, as a pastor. So it would have been a couple of years of probably pretty hard depression, um, leading away from the family, which you, I can see why my mother would have been struggling as well. Um, us kids would have been um, emotionally abandoned uh, because of that. Um, yeah, which then eventually led to his uh, taking his life. Hmm. If there's a word you could use to describe the, the tension between your father and your mother, what would it be? That's a, yeah, I, I don't know if I have a word fully. Like, I remember them fighting. I think they tried to hide that a lot from us and probably did a pretty good job of that. I don't know about attention, but a disconnect would mm. maybe be a, a better word. I never really got to see it. And, and as, like a, as a like a little, you know, grade like six or five or seven-year-old boy, you know, I was pretty selfish and I just kind of cared, you know, whatever I want, kind of fun next thing I could do, right? That's kind of how I was thinking. Mm. 
yeah, your frontal cortex is still very much developing to be able to process something like that. So at this point, they're living apart. And do you remember where you were when you found out that he had committed suicide? Oh, yeah. Um, so I was at a, uh, I was actually at a friend's house uh, on Sunday, you know, going after church to a friend's house. And we had gone there and, and we came back for like, our, the church we went to had a, like an evening service. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had come back and I remember we were late and it was, you know, just kind of like, I think it was the fall, or I guess the end of the summer. So things were starting to get um, dark. Uh, so it was kind of dark out. And, and I remember just, they said, oh, don't go into the service. Um, we want you to come to the back. And, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't really know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. So I walked to the back and there's a picnic table there. And there I just turned around the corner and there's my mom and two sisters just like bawling their eyes out. Um, and I just like go up to them and, and I'm just like, you know, like what's happening. And, and obviously they, I don't think they told me, I think somebody else told me that was with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's how I found out. Oh my goodness. And what was your reaction at that time immediately? Uh, I wanted to run, to be honest. Um, I wanted to leave the situation. I remember crying just because I felt like I was supposed to. Um, and I remember imagining, um, just wanting to get away and, and there was a Tim Hortons down the road that I, we always used to went to after church and I just like wanted to go there. I don't know. I felt like safe there or something, I, I reckon. Um, but I just wanted to leave to be honest. And what was it like after that? I mean, you're a, a young teenager at this point, you don't have a father, you're kind of the man of the house. How do you process this? Yeah, so the, the the big thing for me was, I guess, I guess that question that you said, like, how did I first respond? And that's kind of how I kind of continued to respond. I just wanted to escape, escape the situation. I lived in denial for years, I remember. Um, anybody asked me what my dad did, I would just kind of pretend like he was alive. You know, he painted for a bit, so I'd say, oh, he's a painter. You know, I wouldn't really mention his death because any um, thought of that would just bring tears to my eyes. And, and at the same time, like you said, being the man of the house. So I, I have this story that just, boom, just stuck in my head as soon as he passed away. And it was, I was in the car with my sisters um, and um, the question came up, if he ever died, what would happen? And my sister said, oh, I'm the oldest. So I would be like leading the household. <laughs> you know, mm. my dad said right away, no, James is the boy. So he would uh, lead the household. And so for me, that that really stuck out, boom, right in my head, you know, that now, my life had changed. Um, I was no longer a child, but uh, I had to take this role of manhood up as a grade eight-year-old boy, which was hard because um, I I blamed my mother for his death many years growing up, um, and because of the separation, she was the one that left him for a moment, uh, which then ultimately he uh, uh, killed himself. And as as well, like he didn't, she didn't just leave him, but she kind of hid us from him. She was fearful of him taking us and moving to the States because he was American. So I, I grew up in this kind of mixed world of I need to stay and be in the family because this is what my father would request of me. But at the same time, uh, coming home, not uh, loving or appreciating my mother or sisters um, in any way or capacity um, and not wanting to be there. Mm. Wow. So hard. Um, I just can't even imagine. And then you end up moving to London, Ontario. Why did you head southwest? 
Well, I had a, I had one guy that I did hang out with like twice. Um, twice, that's it. Yeah, like a couple <laughs> times at least in grade thirteen. We had More than like others. A, yeah, um, outside of school, you know, um, in grade thirteen, and and so we were like, well, let's just pair up and go somewhere. So London to me, he wouldn't go outside of Ontario. I wanted to get away from my mom and stuff like that and family. And London was in Ontario, but it was still kind of far enough away. I felt okay. Well, that's. That's good for me. And also it was uh, rated, I think, like number three on Playboy magazine for um, like the best party school. So I was like, that, that's me. <laughs> so you were kind of getting into that scene. That was also a bit of an escape? I wasn't getting into that scene yet. I wanted to. So I see. Like, you know, in high school, I never had any friends that I hanged out with outside of school. So I never partied or or I did drink on my own, but not um, not with friends or anything like that. So that's and I, I felt like I had missed out on that. Mm. Um, so I was looking for what the world told me uh, would bring me happiness, I guess you could say. Mm. And so how do you go about finding work when you get to London? I think because of my work ethic that I had... Um, established in high school working so much um essentially what happened was you know i started smoking weed um and because the guy i was with smoke well not because of him because i wanted to smoke weed yeah um something you missed out on yeah that's right something i missed out on i started to do that um it seemed to be logical that if i'm going to be smoking all this weed i might as well be selling it because then you can like it's cheaper you know you make a little bit of money off of it but after about a year, I had an opportunity. There was a drought that happened in the city uh, for weed, and I had an opportunity to buy a bunch of weed um, and fill that void, uh, like, you know, in business. Uh, if there's a need and you fill that, that's, that's where you succeed. So that happened. So I started selling weed. Second year, I was up there, did quite well at it, and then uh, met some more people, um, started actually uh, selling um, more than weed, I'll say, different kind of narcotics. Sure. Got into that scene as an individual uh, drug dealer. Mm. And where's your heart at this point, James? You've got this friend, you're kind of getting into this scene. Are you able to open yourself up a little bit more during these years in London? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, I, I think if anything more, I was just numbing myself more. Mm. Um, more drinking. Um, actually, the friend that I had had come up with, he still lived with me the second year, but um, I can't go into the details of what, what was going on in his life, but we basically, uh, we weren't close friends anymore, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, second year, though, met a couple guys. Uh, I'm talking like every night we drank, every night we did drugs, uh, every night we we, we went out. Um, I remember this one time we went to a bar and they literally, they we got kicked out and they, we were upset about it. They're like, guys, just take one night off. That's all we're asking. And we're like, okay. <laughs> Does romance come about in London too, a little bit for you? Third year in London, I think maybe about three months into the school year, met a girl, um, you know, we did not uh, connect on a weekly basis, but we both would get drunk, you know, meet up after, do our thing, and eventually uh, fourth year, uh, we pretty much moved in together. Um, she she had her own place, but I mean, every every morning, every night, we woke up next to each other. So that was um, an amazing and traumatic experience for me. Mm. Amazing. So would you say that you didn't necessarily numb yourself completely to her? You opened it up to her a little bit more? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there were times that I tried, but I think it was probably uh, a bit of a case that we both filled a void of loneliness in our lives. Mm. She was there. She was present, something I had not experienced in a long time. 
And that was um, soothing to me. Now you're doing this drug dealing thing for a little while and eventually uh, you hit a bit of a rock bottom. Basically what happened was I was just driving, doing a drop somewhere. Uh, I had always tried to um, make a maneuver or go around a block or go down a different street uh, just to make sure nobody was following me, police or whatever. And essentially what happened was I kind of came on to that somebody was following me. Next thing you know, I'm getting pulled over by an undercover cop. Mm. Uh, or at least that's what I thought it was. But next thing you know, there's actually like three or four SUVs surrounding me, just like you'd see in a show, somebody in the front side and back coming out, guns out, you know, for warrant for my arrest. And wow. um, seize of or warrant to search my property, taken to jail, put on probation. Yeah. What was going through your head then? Well, that that's actually the, that was the first realization of, um, wow, maybe God is not only exists, but he lives and works in people's lives. Um, and that was something that would, to me was clearly shown. They had come in, they had come in and tore my apartment to pieces. Um, and they, they found some weed um, that it was not hiding. Um, but the money and the uh, more upscale um, drugs, they didn't find at all. Mm. Um, so I, I was sitting in a cell and basically it's kind of a funny story. You know, they, they bring you in and they're like, you know, we found the weed and I'm just like, in my head, I'm like, that's awesome because, you know, like the rest is not, you didn't find that. And it was just such so relieving to me. But then I, you know, then they take you to maximum security prison. You're sitting there and you start thinking of things you have nothing to do. And you start thinking, well, why didn't they find that? You know, mm-hmm. like, like these guys are professionals. Like, why didn't they look in this spot? You know, why didn't they look in this spot? It was, it was hidden well, but um, in my opinion, they, they should have found it. Um, and they didn't. And that, so that, that was, a, that was a, the start of me seeing like, okay, God, you like, you had come and helped me. And, and I didn't know who this God was, but um, I mean, he must exist. And uh, that, was, that was the start of the journey. I, I didn't become saved by any means at that point. Um, but I started to, started to really start thinking about that. Um, a God that created all things, was he living and active and working uh, not only in people's lives, but my own life? Wow. Just mind-boggling. Yeah, it was, uh, it was painful. <laughs> um, but uh, when I look back, it was a blessing. For mm-hmm. sure. At the same time, um, my girlfriend who I was with, she uh, had formed an addiction to fentanyl. Um, so oh. this intimate, loving relationship that I just adored um, would come in just huge peaks of just joy and happiness, uh, only to be dropped uh, to just like the most painful things I've experienced. The way I describe it, like we call it betrayal in, in counseling and stuff like that. Um, and, I, and I describe it more painful than anything to do with my mom or father's passing or sisters. It, that, that intimacy I felt with her and then to go in that direction um, was just so hard for me. And then it's not just a rock bottom with your work. It's a rock bottom with your relationship too. Right, yeah, I rock bottom with everything. So I see that God exists. He, he was working in my life. I also, at that time as well, I got robbed for a substantial amount of um, money, essentially. And I was writing down this morning how I had felt that, uh, you know, I started, I, so what I did is I called my mom, didn't want to, but I humbly called her and, and said if she knew anybody in the, in the area that had a Bible study. So I started going to this Bible study, and the guy used to pick me up every week to go to Bible study, and I remember saying to him when I said, you know, I feel like if I, if I go down this path of, you know, trying to recover this money, um, 
that I can't go down the path of God. Like uh, it's like it almost seemed like a two-way street. I was going to get deeper into it or go the other way, go to God. And uh, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is, at least for me, when I came out of jail, like I'm, I, I, it's scary for sure. You know, like I would say, I, I know what it feels like in a sense for a dog to be locked in a cage. You know, to be fed through a through a, a hole. At the same time, I came up out angry as well. Like, okay, this is my identity. I am a drug dealer. This is my job. This is my career. And 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 so there was kind of a two-way war and ultimately uh through the patience of god uh his loving kindness as scripture says um i started to uh I, in my head i regulated in my head that you know if, if the bible is real that if i open it up if i read it if i start applying it to my life if this is a living god a real god then then things should, should change for me and you know i kind of gave a bit of the backstory my ex was going through relapses I'm going through court cases. At the same time, I'm just doing a little bit of a Bible study by myself. Um, and I'm trying to apply His Word to my life a little bit. And somewhere inside, like, things felt good, even though, like, everything was falling apart. Wow. Everything. Like, financially, I'm not doing as well as I used to be. Relationally, I have, you know, I'm going through this high peaks and low peaks. Um, but yet, there's a peace somewhere in there. And it was, and it was God's Word. Um, and that was that's where things changed. Um, eventually, what happened was, uh, if we want to say, become saved. Um, the, the way I know it was, I felt that peace, I felt that that goodness, and then eventually, when I completely like said, God, I'm all in. You know, like I remember accepting Jesus, not necessarily because I understood the gospel that well, um, but just because I was like, I accept your word and, and Jesus is in your word and he says he died for my sin, I get it, I'm just gonna accept it all. And I and I gave my life to God. And when that happened for me, it wasn't no longer just a feeling of peace. There was there was something inside of me that 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 started to hate evil and love righteousness. That's the only way wow. I can put it. Like to hate evil and love righteousness. I'd go to the bar and I would just see stupidity in my own life and others, and and not out of hatred or just like just compassion almost um, for what was going on and and how wrong I had been to live that life. How how I'd been lied to by the world um, and others and mm-hmm. myself lied to myself. So you're getting discipled in in London. Your your life is is changing radically. How does this affect your your family life now? Like with my mother and stuff. Yeah. Like that? Um. It was still a I, journey. Yeah, it was a journey at the beginning for sure. Um. I actually it was through the Word that 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 really started to change for me. The biggest one was you know the Ten Commandments: honor your father and mother. So that was that really hit me home that the fact that I wasn't answering my mother's phone calls. You know, if she, if I did, I would like make up an excuse and lie and, you know, say, oh, I'm busy, you know, when I'm just like sitting there. Um, and, and I would, so, but then I heard a sermon too, and it, and it talked about how my, um, the widows, the responsibility is on the church to take care of them unless they have sib- like a children. And then the f- responsibility falls on the children. I'm like, I'm the child, you know, and, and I don't want to take care of my mom. I, I was upset at her still, I'm sure, at the core. Um, but because I have my heart to serve the Lord, I just did it. And then, and then things started to change. You know, my mom and my relationship are still not perfect, but things have been so much better. And it wasn't because I understood why God said to do what he wanted me to do, you know, to serve my mom, to love my mom. But because I was just, because he said to do it, I just did it. That's, that's how I kind of came to Christ, you know, reading the word. I didn't have any Christians really around me. I just was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. It says to do it. I don't get it. I don't know why. But I'm just going to do it. And, and God always shows me why later. But 
Um, yeah, that was how it started to form that. You, know, you have to start building trust again. It's been a great journey. It's been really, really hard, but it's been good. Did your mom respond well? Um, I don't really remember how she first responded. I'm sure she she felt feels a lot of rejection still to this day um, mm. from me, um, mm. which rightfully so. My sisters would as well. Responding, I'm sure there's times when I can look back that she was angry, and, and there's times I have to calm her down and say, you know, no, I, I am just loving you. It's, there's no condition attached. I'm not going to leave you, right? Because uh, I think we have in society a big idea of love. It's It's really a... Uh, a trade-off, I, I put it. It's a barter. I'll do this for you. You do this for me, right? Where God's love is, I'm just going to love you no matter what. Um, and that's what I was trying to do to her and to people as hard as it was. Um, but but people just aren't going to believe you, right? You've destroyed any trust in the relationship. So that's that's. there's definitely been some uh, ups and downs for sure. Mm. And this journey eventually takes you to Australia. You Your occupation changes. You're sensitive to God's call at church. A missionary is there one Sunday at a church in London, and they want people to plant, help plant churches in Australia. So you go, and you have that experience, and eventually you're led back to Canada, which is how our paths have crossed. You mentioned that upon the, the cops showing up that one day and catching you, in some way you felt like your identity was wrapped up in being a drug dealer. But here you are today in 2022. How has that identity been stripped? Yeah, I, th- I think for me, I, w- I don't know if I'd say my identity was um, as a drug dealer. It was more as a independent person who did what he wanted to do. I mean, I hopefully that can relate to all people, the people that are not following the Lord. Um, but now my, my, my identity is a servant of the Lord, you know. Um, and not only that, one thing I've been meditating a lot the last year is that I'm his son. Um, not that I'm like a black sheep son or, you know, I'm, I'm just like this adopted son that's like kind of there. He's accepted, but he's not always accepted or whatever. But like that, I'm his son and mm-hmm. that uh, he is just like just always there for me. He's leading the way and the path for me. And um, I really don't have to worry about anything. I still do, mm-hmm. but but I don't have to because mm-hmm. I got this big father and he's just walking before me and I'm this little kid behind him and um, he's just doing it all for me, you mm. know. Oh. Well, that reality has been, I mean, uh, as a friend, I, I can't help but see just, a, I mean, you, you tell me about how hard you used to be as a man, but you've got such a soft, soft heart and uh, it's it's just so evident that, that God is in your life. James, it's been a privilege chatting with you and you mentioned how the word of God has brought such healing to you. Could you just finish us off with the with a scripture that's important to you? Yeah, I, th- I think for me, how Paul saw this church in Corinthians, um, it says in, in 5 verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we are not convinced that one died for all, and that therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And another translation says, regard no one from a fleshly perspective. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer do. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And it's just so beautiful that Paul is looking on these people and, and they've sinned and, and he knows their sin, you know. And and he says, I don't see you like that. I see you guys as a new creation. You know, mm. the old has passed and the new's come. And it's just uh, it's really been healing for my journey to see that. Mm. Let those words ring into your ears, the truth of, of what Jesus has done in your life. 
James Manzo, thank you so much for sharing and having the, the boldness to bring your story to people. And we just pray that it would be an encouragement and point them to the cross as we journey together towards Easter. Thanks, David. I told you it was a God story. Unbelievable. What a gift that James would share that. If you want to share the story with a friend, please do. We're at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. As we press on in this sacred season of Lent, our mini-series, The Power of the Cross, continues. So don't miss my conversation with renowned Bible scholar and professor at Crandall University in Moncton, John Stackhouse. I think that the Easter weekend is a continuing anomaly in Canadian life. Christmas has been domesticated, as you know, so thoroughly with Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus. Easter is much harder to commercialize. You know, it's it's really hard to sentimentalize a guy writhing on a cross who's about to die. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.